Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Holfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, I talk with James D. Wilcox, ACE, about editing Ron Howard's new film, Hillbilly Elegy, which is available now in select theaters and on Netflix. Ron Howard has edited nearly all of his films with a pair of veteran Oscar-winning editors, Mike Hill, ACE, and Dan Hanley, ACE. I've interviewed Mike and Dan before on Art of the Cut for In the Heart of the Sea. Attempting to fill their shoes is a daunting task, and one James is clearly up for. He won multiple Emmys for his news editing days and an ace Eddie for his editing of the original Genius series pilot, Einstein Chapter One. His other work includes TV series Everybody Hates Chris, Roots, Hawaii Five-O, CSI Miami, Dark Angel, Hand of God, and Reno 911, among many others. James is also a director and was nominated for a BET Comedy Award and an NAACP Image Award for directing My Wife and Kids. James, man, it is so good to talk to you again. You had some enormous shoes to fill. You had two guys that had been cutting for Ron for years, not only just one, but two. And now you're taking place of both of them. Tell me a little bit about the apprehension or the challenge of doing that. No, you know what? I never contrasted myself against Dan Hanley and Mike Hill. And Mike, I never met. And Dan, I met on Genius. And we can talk about how we really kind of formed a friendship after that, because that's how I came to know. Ron as well. But yeah, the challenge of filling in for two Oscar winning editors and working at that pace because Ron was used to that triangle of editors that he was working in and he could bounce from one room to the next and give notes and come back and then see how the notes were advancing. And they just had a well-oiled machine down. And then of course, Mike retired after In the Heart of the Sea and Dan after Inferno, that was his last feature. And then he went over to do Genius And that's where I met him. And then he retired shortly after that. So that left an opening. And then Ron had gone off and done solo. Pietro Scalia had cut that with him. And then Hillbilly Elegy came up. And I was in Ron's sort of sphere from genius through a series of convergent events we ended up hooking back up. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, what happened on Genius that kind of got you into the driver's seat on this one? Well, I give a lot of credit to Dan about that because on Genius, I interviewed with Dan and another Imagine executive and the showrunner of Genius the first season that I had known from previously working on James Cameron's Dark Angel series. So when I went in, there was a little bit of familiarity, but I didn't know Dan and I didn't know the Imagine exec and the cult. And um, we sat down, we did the meeting, and the whole idea was that Dan was going to work with Ron to sort of like form the look of the first season of Genius to get the pilot off the ground. They were looking for, again, he was used to two editors, So he brought me in because there is a distinct advantage to having two editors. You can work seemingly theoretically twice as fast and you can get two different opinions that collaborate independent from the director as well as with the director. So there's a lot of pluses to it. So they hired me to come in and assist Dan in forming the look of genius. But coming off of Inferno and the long run of illustrious films that Dan had done with Ron, it was one of those things where he called me and he said, James, you know, I think it might be time for me to retire. 
Oh, these films take you on the road. They take you away from your family a lot. There's a lot that goes into it. It's always not so glamorous that are real sacrifices. And I think that Dan was just ready to kind of settle in and reconnect with his family and his life. And so it was his blessing that he felt good enough to have genius in my hands that he could comfortably retire. And then I inherited genius by myself. And then Ron and I started working together. He was shooting in Prague and we never really actually met until shooting wrapped and he came back and then we met and then I took him around to the rest of the staff and he met the staff of Genius and that's how it all kind of began and in the process when I was sending him cuts this was part of the workflow that Dan and Mike had created where you send him various scenes and you get some feedback early on so everything's not piled in the corner until you wrap shooting and then you're getting all the notes at once so there were things that I could get an early jump on and it helped me connect with Ron so I could understand his sense Abilities, and he could see how I saw the material. We meshed really, really well. In fact, the performances was one of the things that he most articulated that he liked about my work. From that point on, we came in, worked together in person, shoulder to shoulder. It was great. We had a wonderful time, albeit brief. And that was the beginning of our working relationship. I love that. You, you said something in quick passing there that I wanted to touch on, which was he liked your performance. What you mean, obviously, is your take and his take on the actor's performance is really, that is a really important thing to mesh on. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, Steve, it's, it's the, probably the most important aspect of it of filmmaking for me as an editor is performance choices, laying out characters and looking for moments that aren't scripted, looking for real moments of human behavior and the dynamics between people. I think once an editor is able to decipher what they're looking at and they can go beyond the script, that I think is what makes a film special and what kind of separates editors. And for me, I got a really firsthand dose of acting experience because I was in Beverly Hills Playhouse for three years and I've done some directing. So I can approach my editing from what the director sees and how I interpret what the director has given me to work with, but also those actors' intentions and choices on how they're arcing their character and what I need to do to influence that work overall and to understand what those choices are. And yes, I, I, to correct myself, what I meant was Ron really liked my performance choices as it related to the actor's choices and how he saw the scenes unfolding on set, sometimes accompanied by notes, and then other times what we tinkered with and came up with in the edit. Mm, yeah, I love that. There's a scene in Hillbilly Elegy in a car right after JD has bought a, a calculator. And I was curious what kind of colors or tones or temperatures you were getting in that car. The actor could go really big. They could go really angry. They could go all these different directions. Talk to me about constructing a scene like that where you might have different colors of performance. That seems really interesting. You're talking about the scene where JD has stolen a calculator. There's been a lot of pressure on him. He's at one of the most troubled points in his career. He's 13 years old and he hasn't been doing his homework. He's a very bright kid, but he's just slipping down a dark path. And his grandmother recognizes that. He's gone into Radio Shack. He's stolen the calculator. She's found out about it. Now she's come to get him and she's going to have this come to Jesus talk with him. So they're riding in the car. And he's frustrated because she doesn't like the people he's hanging around with. She sees that his life is going off the rails. It reminds her of how her daughter's life went off the rails, how the environment can just, and the hanging around with the wrong people can just eat you up. 
And so she comes to pick him up after he's been busted for stealing the calculator. And she starts laying into him and tells him, you got to get new friends. You got to get it together. You, you, you know, you're 13. I'm not going to be around forever. And he's frustrated with her. And he wasn't supposed to be living with her. He's supposed to be living with his mom. So once they settle in, pull the car over and she starts talking to him. Now, we're shooting this scene in Georgia. So it was a very humid, hot day. And everybody was worked up. And you could see that the heat was affecting performances. Glenn Close, who plays the grandmother, really kind of, she's kind of red, she's kind of sweaty, it's really hot. And this was a very hard day for everybody because they're sitting in the car. The windows aren't really down necessarily. So you got more heat. And then you have all these variances of performances. You know, she starts with giving him a very civil talk about how he's got to pull his act together, how people like them don't really get a lot of chances. And by that, she means, you know, they're poor underclass people who don't have privilege, they don't have legacy in their family, they don't have a lot of opportunity and they've got to make the most out of it. And that's just to have a chance to succeed. So that's the gist of her argument, which is actually a very universal argument or not even argument, a very universal speech that a lot of mothers, grandmothers, a lot of strong women have told their children, their sons, their daughters, as they see them going off the rail. So in that scene, you have variances of Glenn Close starts with talking to the young boy, J.D., very civilly. And that tends to elicit a reaction of from him that is about the same. Then Ron went in and adjusted some performances, suggested to Glenn, maybe you can try this a little angrier at him. And then it worked a little better. Then we kept going until we finally got to that one take where she was just on fire. It brought a frustration out of him that was just completely unscripted at times. He blurts out, I hate you. Why did you even want me? And she tells him, I didn't want you. You know, this is just the way it is, you know? And so it's a real growing up, coming of age moment. But it was very difficult because as I was putting my cut together with that scene, that was one of the last scenes that I cut. I knew that I wasn't fully satisfied with that scene. And I knew that that scene was going to take more time to get to my satisfaction and ultimately for Ron's approval and his satisfaction. So what we did was I cut it and it was great. The first pass of it, it was good enough. But then what we did is we dug into dailies and this is where a second editor would have helped. But he took one of my assistants, I sent them down the hall with one of my assistants and they just looked at takes. And then they pulled some selects aside and they gave it back to me. And he goes, James, take a pass at some of these takes on given lines. Try this one. Try that one. Now the trick becomes, Steve, as you know, moderating those performances because Glenn's sweating in some of them. Some of them, she's just in that emotional state where if you go to an earlier take, you're going to see that she's not performing as well. So we found a sweet take. And then along with the other pieces, we were able to get a performance that hopefully feels seamless as she gives this kid the talking to of his life. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about it is because I know the variation that you probably were dealing with and to make it feel like it was one take is, is awesome. You know, I can't take full credit for that, even though a big part of it is me to be the architect of that scene. But you have to give some credit, a lot of credit to the brilliance of a Glenn Close, who once she finds what that note is, what that temperature is that feels right for the scene and right for the moment along with Ron's direction, that she then hovers in that acting space, in that choice space to go, okay, I can go more if I want, but not less. 
because this is where the scene is residing now. So they truly have found the scene. And then she works even better with her choices from that place going forward. Uh, did you read the book before you interviewed or before you edited? I did. When we were having early conversations about me being in the running to cut the film, I immediately went out and bought it. In fact, my assistant went out and bought it for me because at that time, the thinking was that if I landed the project, he was going to be my leader or my second. Um, and that turned out to not be the case because we cut in New York and you have to honor the way that that works there with the tax incentives you hire locals. So I wasn't able to bring him on board. But yes, I went out and read the book because I really wanted to know who this guy J.D. Vance was. I had seen him on like MSNBC a couple of times and listened to some sound bites here and there, but I had no idea of real his background, his values, what made the guy tick. And so I went out and read the book to see like who these people were that were around him, who the key figures were in his life. So that when Ron and I had a conversation about it, knowing that it was a memoir and he was going to hone in on specific moments in his life, I'd be well versed in that. And then there's also this, it's a biopic. So you want to be honest and actually, you know, authentic to what the story is that is the, the story of his life. So, yes, I went out and, and bought the book and read it and oftentimes referred back to the book in moments of indecision as I was cutting. What did he say again here? What did he do here? It was like my compass. It oftentimes informed me of my choices. Is there a danger that you know the story better than the audience might? There's always that danger, you know, which I give the audience a lot of credit. I'm not one of these editors who feels like, well, the audience doesn't know anything because I think people are very sharp and very smart and they catch on quick and, and they understand what's going on. And that was the beauty of having a lot of screenings where we could modulate what is happening with what we know about JD and versus the audience. What are they learning? Tell me a little bit about intercutting. The first time that I noticed it was intercutting at the top between two simultaneous events, the swimming hole and the mom wanting to pack up and leave and JD's not there because he's at the swimming hole. When you're intercutting scenes, what is something that helps you know that moment that propels you into the next scene or is it just time to go to the next scene? I mean, it's a little bit of both. That moment where you decide to depart depends on what you think the audience you've left them with. Do they know enough to not carry through the rest of the scene. It's a, it's a high point thing. You want to get in at the peak and you want to get out at the peak. You know, you hear editors talk about that and that's true and that's how we work. But I also want to make sure that the audience is really clear and informed on when we depart and where we're going next, that they're not lost because cross-cutting can oftentimes do that. Time hops can oftentimes do that. And it's interesting, that scene, the opening of the, of the movie really was rejiggered because it really started with his grandfather on the porch, sitting with his uncles. Bev, his mom comes out and she wants to know where JD is. And JD is driving, riding down on this road, this country road, and he finds the turtle and he tries to return the turtle back to to where it can heal, you know? And then she came out a second time and she goes, why isn't everybody packed? I'm ready to go back to Ohio and leave Kentucky. And I thought, you know what? After a couple of screenings, because of Glenn Close and Amy Adams are such titans on screen, it became a little confusing to the audience as to whose movie this was. Whose eyes are we gonna look at enter into this movie through? And then I just said, let me try a few things here. So I decided to drop a few scenes, the opening scene where she asked anybody seen JD and the uncle Uncle says down at the swim hole. Well, that's showing that down at the swim hole put the audience ahead of her. And I didn't like that. 
I thought that we should come right out, show JD, establish him. This is the guy. This is the boy whose story that this is all about. And then have Bev come out and go, why isn't anybody packed? You know, and by the way, where's your brother? I don't know. He took off. Then we find that he's gone swimming. He's trying to get one of his last swims in before it's time to pack up and go back to Ohio. So those kind of things like that, I just don't like oftentimes where the audience is ahead of some of our characters because we're playing catch up and they know that. And I think it bores an audience unless that information is left there to maybe misdirect the audience. In this case, that's not what we were doing. We just needed clarity. It sounds like it also helped audience center on the right character that right from the very beginning you know who you're following it allowed us to be a little more traditional that way and understand clearly that this is who we need to pay attention to and everyone else is in his universe they're surrounding him but he is the focal point of the story Mm. was that family photo montage at the beginning was that a scripted thing no no, oh, tell me about all. that, because I love that family photo montage. You know what? Ron Howard will be very happy to hear that you love that. It started with the one photo where the grandmother goes, OK, everybody, let's gather around and get the family picture before we go, which was a tradition. So he saw that and I could tell something was brewing about that, that it just felt a little like unsatisfying to him. And he came in one day and he said, James, what if we built that out? As we started to talk about it more and more, I just got some pictures off the Internet that looked like they could be the Vance family throughout the years. And then we started playing with the length and how many pictures we were. And we knew that part of J.D. Vance's legacy and part of his history, his family history, is that he has connection to uh, the Hatfield-McCoy feud. I knew that if we could find one of those historic photos to end on it, because that comes up later in the movie, It was Ron's idea to embellish it and beef it up. And it's like a history and brief of the people in the region, of his family, and the tradition. And it's a great, like, 10, 12-second way of giving the audience a lot without dialogue. Yeah. All those photo selections, in the end, were pretty much mine and then approved by Ron. Did you have to Photoshop them? Because I thought a couple of them looked like they were still the same family members. Uh, Not so much the same family members, but we tried to anchor those pictures to the place itself. So if you look at the place, the house that they're standing in front of, that porch, we had to do a little VFX work to characterize that house throughout the years. And then you could see that work had been done on it as it became older and older and farther back. But essentially the first three, four pictures are the same house that the roof has been tweaked a little bit, but we went in and made sure the beams were painted the same color. So there was some continuity anchoring it to the actual house down in the holler. I thought it was interesting when you went to Middletown for the first time, there's like a flashback and you don't just go back and kind of stay back. It, it goes from present day to past to present as they return back to his hometown, essentially. And it's also the beginning of establishing going through that tunnel as a motif that you see throughout the film. Yeah, that's a great question, because what we were doing was a, a lot of nonlinear storytelling just with imagery. And that is the story when the family leaves the holler in Kentucky for Middletown, we start telling the story of how Jim and Bonnie took off, the Vances took off at an early age to go up to Ohio for a better life. It's supposed to be juxtaposed and contrasted with where the family is now. And you see that as they enter the town, there's a big factory that 
is going to be the jewel of employment for Middletown, Ohio. And then you see as they get older and they're returning back from Kentucky, you see how the factory is closed down now and how the town has fallen. That is the story of that. And then going through the tunnel signifies so much. It's almost like this, this crossing. In some ways, it's like a birth canal. It, it is met with hope and it is met with trepidation and it is met with ultimately, in some ways, a relief. Uh, it comes full circle. I don't want to give the end of the movie away, but that tunnel took on a lot of significance throughout the movie because a lot of people, when they go back home, they have feelings of anxiety. Can you return home? What will home be like? It's illustrated through that tunnel. And for me, I I come from Pittsburgh and I have a lot of regional understanding of what happened in the movie. I even at one point, as soon as I graduated high school, I worked in a steel factory because that was the still, at, at that point, it was still the number one driving source of employment in Pittsburgh and in the region between Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, Pennsylvania. As a result of that, I had a lot of connection to what J.D. Vance and the Vance family and that culture was going through, albeit our dynamics were different, but I understood that. So I understood a lot of what it meant when he went through the tunnel, when people would go through the tunnel, because Pittsburgh is a city that has a lot of bridges and tunnels and mountains. And so when you enter Pittsburgh, you have that same feeling of what is this going to be like? Uh, I love your emotional understanding of the characters and of the film itself. I really think empathy is so important in an editor. Can you just talk about empathy for a while and, and and how that shapes what you do. Relied upon trait as an editor, as a storyteller. In general, I think writers, directors, editors, production designers, anyone that has DPs that has an influence on a film, a significant influence, needs to have a lot of empathy because it's not our job. I mean, I try and I'm going for authenticity and legitimacy in my storytelling. That doesn't mean I have to create a structure or a way that I cut a movie or a show or a TV show or whatever it is that you have to like the characters, my job is to help you understand the characters. And then if you like them, that's even better. If you don't like them, at least you understand through empathy why you're feeling the way that you are. And in Hillbilly Elegy, it's a real challenge to establish JD's mom, who struggles with addiction, who struggles with a lot of personal issues, to get the audience to understand what it is about her, why she's in the state that she's in. And that, for me, requires no judgment. I just cut it the way that I feel like. And that goes back to the book. What happened in real life? How do I characterize this on screen with the choices that I'm given to work with? I approach everything, every character from an empathetic point of view, because that's what connects us all. That's my firm belief. There's an early uh, law dinner table conversation. JD's trying to get a job with this law firm. He goes to this dinner to try to impress some people. And it's uh, like eight people around a table or some fairly large number. Those scenes are really difficult to cut because of eye lines and stuff. Could you talk about the, the technical aspect of trying to even organize the material so that you can properly execute that scene? Yeah, those dinner table scenes, sometimes courtroom scenes, but for sure dinner table scenes scenes, they really challenge an editor and they challenge a director. Even before you get the material, the director is challenging. You have to spend the proper amount of time to pick up all those eye lines or you'll be on the wrong camera at the wrong time when that actor and their scene partners aren't interacting. And when you have a main character like that, JD at a dinner table scene where he is essentially sitting at a table with like six, seven other people. You have to have all those eye lines to draw those personal connections between those characters or else something feels off. You have to do it 
over and over and over again when you're shooting it. You really need very disciplined actors who understand that if they took a drink of water after a certain line, that every time they take that drink of water after a certain line, or now you're into this territory as an editor where I call it defensive editing. You're not really being able to do what you want with the material, but the material kind of is having its way. So you got to cut away to something else to come back and then get back in your pattern. You know, sometimes it's not a big thing because I'm trying to cut the scene on a multiple levels. There's actually what's happening and then there's apparently what's happening. And so the actual happening at the dinner table sometimes may be more interesting by play between two other characters as relating to the main character. So you have all those choices, but they really do challenge editor and a director on on how they're shot. And when they're not shot properly or cut properly, boy, they stick out. And it's funny too, because those scenes oftentimes have the irony of being really long scenes. In addition to the challenge of all the eye lines and making the conversation work and being at the right place at the right time in the right size and then in the right performance, those scenes oftentimes have that duality of they're really long also. <laughs> right. And you're trying to keep them interesting. Yeah. Cause that's like a four minute scene, the one you're talking about. About. Did you organize the eye lines? Like normally an editor would organize his bin so that it's like wide shots and then two shots and close-ups of one person and close-ups of another person. Do you then also have to do close-ups of a specific character's eye line? Like here's the close-ups of JD looking at character one. Here's the close-ups of JD looking at character two. How are you organizing that or your assistant organizing it? Well, I, I have my assistant organize everything in groups. The frame representative of each camera tells me it informs me of what I'm looking at, the size that I'm looking at. I don't really get too technically into the eye lines until I master the performance first. So I go in and I look at building up all of the performances, what are the best takes, what are the best performances to use? And then Ron, as, as when he's directing, he shoots with a lot of detail. So you may have in that instance, food on the plate. There's bread that's being put down. The waiter is coming by and he's pouring wine. And so you have a lot of business that's happening at the same time. So I tend to not really get too hung up on the eye lines, but I deal with the performance and the takes and the delivery. And if, and if that's satisfying to me, then I go in and go, okay, at this point is where we need to be in close. And so I'll start looking for that structure of eyelines secondarily after I've already cut the scene. And those scenes like that, that are four minutes, I just chip away at them. I'll take a minute or a minute and a half and go, this is a sizable part of my day. I'm happy with it. I'll leave it alone. I'll go, cut, go away from it, cut something shorter, leave it alone until the next morning, come back the next morning, review it and go, ah, okay, I actually missed a beat here. There's something I need to include and I need to be on the other shoulder of this character rather than um, the one that I currently cut. Because it can get a little overwhelming with the amount of footage and you're just trying to get through it and digest it. And then I'll come back in the next morning and it's amazing what being away from it for eight, 10 hours will give you the clarity that it allows you to have. So that's what I tend to do. And then, and then there's also the overlapping of dialogue at times too. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with James Wilcox. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. 
This week, Film Tools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on filmtools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on filmtools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to filmtools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with James Wilcox. Talk to me a little bit about patience and how maybe as a more experienced editor, that's something you're coming to embrace. I spend tons and tons of time on every single scene, sometimes to the point where I back myself into a corner and the schedule kind of doesn't work in my favor anymore. At the end of the day, people don't go to the theater to see my schedule. They go to the theater to see the performances. So any amount of time that I have to invest in it, and I had two Oscar-worthy, Oscar-nominated actors and an Oscar-winning director, I know the choices are there. And I want to put the time in to make sure that I'm making them happy and servicing the story. So so for me, it sometimes absorbs way more time than I think that it, it could for other editors, but I just don't give up on scenes. And I know I need these micro beats to be and the big moments, how they should land. And once I get it to a point where I'm generally happy with it, I will leave it alone, sometimes for two days, because I do find that's one of the luxuries of me working in features as opposed to television, where you don't always get that second look back at things or the third look back at things as the schedule rolls forward. But on this particular project, on this feature, I was able to leave things on the shelf for a couple of days, come back, look at it, bring my assistants in, get a second opinion, maybe change takes. And as the movie evolves, it's informing me of what I need to be doing at that moment. Like, for instance, here's here's an example. With Amy Adams' character, Bev, when we first meet her, she's in a big hurry to get back to Ohio because she considers Kentucky to just be way too slow and country and just not interesting and for her at all. She's just more at, at home in Ohio and she's boyfriend back there. And it was important in my first pass she came out and she was really kind of sort of aggressive about how she was telling her mother, Glenn Close, like, we got to get out of here. I want to get back to Ohio and everything. And then as the movie evolved and I got down the road with her with various scenes, I realized that I needed to tamp her down in the beginning because she has some big moments, big emotional explosions and implosions downstream that I needed to audience to be on board and just like her understand her, use takes where she's smiling. You know, when JD gets back home in the truck with his uncles and she says, what happened to you? And he tells her, oh, they got in a fight down there at the swim hole with some boys from the, another rival family. Well, she's kind of smiling through it, but she also wants to know, hey, did you take up for yourself? Did you did you do the right thing? Did you, you didn't let anybody pick on you, right? But it's more of a mama bear moment than her being unstable, and she says, I'll kill him, but she's just taking up for her son as any mother would do when they see their child's been threatened or injured or whatever from somebody else. So those kinds of things inform me as I build out the show, what I need to do with performances. And that's why I end up spending a lot of time on performances all across the board. And in that scene where you're talking about with her driving in the car just after they've come from the card shop and and she's stolen the cards for her son, that scene, there were so many different choices choices, but I needed to see vulnerability from her. I needed to see how in the beginning of that scene, as they're driving along and settling in, that she's really trying to build up her nerve 
to suggest to JD, here's a new plan. We could move in with this other boyfriend of mine, Chip. And she knows that JD is not going to be on board with that because he's already experienced the outcome of her living with multiple partners in different places. So he's not on board with that. But then as the, as the conversation continues and goes forward, he understands that, you know, this is, this is a bad idea. And then he makes the bad mistake of saying that one of his friends calls her just flavor of the month. And that sends her off into a deep regression of anger and anxiety and lack of appreciation for what she's doing this for. So I had to go back in there and really look at her performances take after take, especially to, to see when he says that nasty thing to her, she's just flavor of the month. How is she wounded? Like, I want her to be upset about it and react to it, but I want her to see that she's really genuinely hurt. She has feelings, too, that despite what you see about her and how she can go off the rails at times, she's a person that has a heart, a big heart as well, and that she's wounded by that. So that is, that's a lot of careful crafting for that scene and a lot of uh, Amy's performances as well as Glenn's. And, and a lot of it has to do with context, right? As you said, you know, you got these flavors of performance, these temperatures of performance throughout. And when you're cutting the scene the first time, I'm sure there's that thought of, I'm going to go for the biggest, <laughs> for, you know, the, the hottest performance I can. And then you realize the whole movie cannot be yeah. the hottest performance, yeah, right? Exactly it's right. it's like uh, it's like music hitting a dynamic. And you're like, this is where the music has to peak. This is where the movie has to peak. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. That's a great thought because you do have to earn the place where you're at in the movie and you need to build to it. And if you start too hot and with a character like Beverly Vance, who was so unpredictable and spirals out of control so often, you have to really have people not really like her and understand her in the beginning so that you have somewhere to take the character so that people can understand this is why she's the way that she is. Yeah. And these performances, I told somebody since I've watched it, I'm like, I'm, I'm putting my money on Oscars for both of them. That would be lovely. I mean, Honestly, and I'll put you up for one too. <laughs> I'm happy to just be on board and play my part. Yeah. But I have to tell you, for those two women, I don't know how they both aren't multiple Oscar winners by this point in their careers. To see their work ethic, to see them sacrifice so much under the conditions that they were working in, not bad conditions, but I'm talking about the weather shooting in Georgia and South Georgia at times where it's 100 degrees and, you know, it felt like 100% humidity and they're out on these open roads with the sun beaming down on them. And, you know, there's some prosthetics involved and the clothing that's not necessarily favorable to the weather and just the loss of the whole vanity. It's beyond that. And just the physical characterizations from the real characters that they embody, they really sacrificed a lot. This was a truly tough, tough gig, I think, for both of them. And I just stand in awe and appreciation for them. And I do hope that it results in an Oscar wins for both of them. Yeah, amen. Is there a trick to dealing with handheld footage? I didn't recognize how much there was, but there was some handheld footage. Is there a key to cutting that? There's quite a bit. I mean, I'm a big rhythm guy and handheld definitely, there's a couple of things with handheld that I love. I love oftentimes the imperfections of the framing, the suddenness of it, because what you're doing is the operators understand the scenes and the moments, but you're really giving them a lot of credit to tell the story. Through the DP and the operators being able to tell the story in a handheld way, you get more sort of improvisation that way. It's almost like a jazz player where they're listening and they're paying attention and they're deciding, oh, 
Something happened just to the left over here. Whip over, get that. And yet they're staying stable enough in the scene. And it depends on the type of scene. Like I love handheld for so many reasons. It gives you an unstable energy at times. It gives you a suddenness. It gives you that human element where it's more experiential and less observational if you're not handheld. So I really, really dig handheld a whole lot. Now, what handheld can oftentimes do is if you are working between cuts, for me, if I'm working between handheld and sort of studio mode, then I might have to, when I do a cut that goes into like studio mode or a less stable take, I might have to put a little movement on it myself to create a rhythm so that it doesn't feel staccato, so that you're in it and you don't really feel that there's been motion and movement to a sudden stop. And then you may go back to motion and movement again. So I'll just put little creeps on things just so that there's some fluidity between cuts if I have to do that. Oh, that's a great tip. There's a montage uh, where <laughs> Amy Adams' character is roller skating and there's some crazy sound design in there. Can you talk to me about sound design throughout the movie and how important it is? I think overall, my understanding of the movie for me was I wanted to sound design it in a way that it was interesting, but also documentary-like and extremely in the point of view of the character that we were dealing with. So for Amy Adams, you're talking about the scene where she goes into the break room. She's taking some pills. So she's feeling buzzed. She's talking with one of her coworkers who, who is a skater. And she asks to borrow the skates, takes over the skates, tries them on, and down the hall she goes. It's really interesting because as she was skating, it brought back a personal feeling of mine when I used to skate when I was like 15 years old. And it was like a big deal. It just took me back to a time where I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have children. <laughs> I wasn't married. I just, it was just Your fun. wife's phone wasn't broken. Yeah, my <laughs> wife wasn't calling me with a broken phone and my son going, what's the password? And all these things. And it just, I felt like I related in that moment with Amy, except I wasn't high and I would go roller skating as well. And that was just pure fun. And for a character like her, who's been through so many things, she's lost her father. She's had a difficult upbringing. She's trying to raise children. It just felt like one of those moments where this is fun, Beth even though it's out of bounds. It is fun, Beverly Van. So in that, there's shifting sound design for her point of view. When we're on her, it's more external and we're experiencing and hearing oftentimes how the hospital is responding to her and the doctors and the nurses around her. Like, we've seen a lot come in here. We've never <laughs> seen this before. And then when we're in her point of view, Everything is sort of muted and warpy and a little sound designing and like it, it happens with the music and it happens with the dialogue as doctors are yelling at her and going, hey, 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 security, you can't do that. For me, it was all about just living the experience with that character and the sound design, I thought, helped accentuate the fact that she was high and also it was internally how she was feeling. Yeah, I, I think it helped because there was that fun sense of it. You're getting to like her, but you're also realizing she should not be doing this, right? Yeah, the audience is really kind of torn in the middle of that, I thought. Most flashbacks were done with cuts. Some of them were done with a little defocus thing. Was there a reason for the defocus in those places? We decided, I decided that we were just going to do whatever worked. Sometimes cuts worked one-to-one. -one. I'll give you an example of that. When JD takes off to go back 
to Middletown to visit his mom in the hospital. And he's at the gas station and his girlfriend, Usha, is saying, where are you? You have a big interview coming up and you're on your way back to Ohio. And he doesn't tell her why. He's a little bit ashamed to like divulge that information to her for fear of losing her. And he sits in the car at the conclusion of that scene. And he's like, wow, what have I gotten myself into? This is heavy stuff. He loves his mother and he has to go back and visit her. And then we cut to an earlier incident with his younger self sitting in the back of a police car. And I thought that those kinds of one-to-one cuts help you seamlessly see that from age 13 to 28, he's been carrying a lot of burden across his life. And it continues. He's on the cusp of a a life-changing decision, a life-altering opportunity. But yet, this is how life is. In comes some drama. In comes some trouble. And so in that instance, the cuts work. Now, there were other instances where in camera, there was a rack focus out of the end of the shot. And I didn't want to go from a rack focus out of the end of a shot and straight cut into the incoming shot. So we would do a little bit of uh, simulated rack focus on the B side to just sew that moment together. You know, you hit on something because there's so many flashbacks in it, Steve. We were reluctant to use a consistent device that every time signal, here's a flashback, here's a, here's another flashback, because I thought that the audience would grow to expect them and that it mm. might bore them. So it yeah. was kind of of the moment, in the moment, what felt best. That makes total sense. There are two scenes that are intercut with quite a bit of violence uh, from present day to past. Can you talk about the energy of that and how you chose the moments that they were intercut? Because I'm sure they weren't exactly scripted like that. No, no, not at all. I mean... The idea was, again, you know, when you're doing a biopic and you're you're zeroing in on a couple of different time periods, you want to be able to unify that 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 character. And so a lot of what J.D. was going through younger in his life, he had a lot of rage. You know, he didn't have the supervision that he oftentimes wanted. And he was starting to get in trouble by hanging around with the wrong crowd. And he was under a bad influence and he was angry. So that anger still lived within him as he gotten older, but it's just handled differently as he gets older. So the cross-cutting of it all was really just what's the most dynamic, most energetic way to show the most violence that lives in this kid? Because he's a good kid, but again, bad decisions, poor choices can ruin us all. As they say, there go, but for the grace of God, there go I. So this is a guy who was in trouble at two pivotal points in his life, and it kind of typifies the movie in that you see the embodiment of it in one cross-cut scene. And the choices made were just simply going in there and going, what's the most visceral, aggressive shots that we could use to tell this story between these two time periods? I want to get back to that scene that we talked about a little bit earlier, which was the one in the car with a calculator, because that was a really pivotal scene. And I know you as a great editor would not be trying to lead the audience with music. And so I love the fact that in this very dramatic scene that you would think, oh, let's put some dramatic music in there. I think that scene plays without music, except for the very end, right? Talk to me about the choice of not placing music in a scene like that. You know, what's that exact moment to spot that cue? That's a great question, by the way, which was a big issue in the whole movie. Start from the beginning of how I placed it until we finished the movie with Hans Zimmer and Dave Fleming and Ron and, and where we thought placement was appropriate. And in that scene, you know, the rhythm of the dialogue itself is music. So you didn't really necessarily need to push or force or sway the audience either way in that scene. 
I wanted it to be neutral so that there was no persuasion of the outcome of that scene. And that was my approach overall. And once I started getting dailies from Glenn and Amy, and I saw that they were carrying these scenes so mightily, I don't want to get in their way. They don't need the added music to support their acting, to support what's happening in these scenes. So placement all of a sudden became, as well as what score we were tempting with, placement became equally as important because I didn't want to get in their path. And that's something that I don't particularly like that style because we had time to let their acting unfold. And that style being leading in a piece of dramatic music in the middle of a scene to underscore it, to know that, okay, we should feel this way or that way, or this is how the scene is now starting to skew and sway. I learned a lot from that as well. I mean, I've been doing that before and it's quite different than when you work in television because television is sometimes more instant and you need to like massage it a little bit more and just kind of introduce score in places that, you know, I haven't always felt comfortable doing that. But in this particular movie, placement was everything. And I just withheld in the car scene. I just withheld all the music because I thought it was all working. You know, overall, characteristically of this movie, because it had at times a documentary-esque style, I felt that subtle was way better than anything that started to feel movie-like. It took you out of it. And we tried it and I had to go there in order to determine that as well, that certain scores still placed just took over the scene and you weren't playing with the raw emotion of what was unfolding, the viscerality of what was unfolding, that raw voyeurism. And it just didn't need music. So that was a testament to how well those scenes were directed and acted. To the point about figuring out when to spot that music, at the end of that scene, you do bring in music, but it felt like the perfect moment, I got to say. So how do you choose, okay, I am going to bring in music at the end of the scene. It can't be too close to the last line or whatever it is, or I can't even remember, was it in the middle of a line? When did you drop music in to go into the next scene? Mama says to JD, you got to decide. And so we sit with that for a moment of what is his decision going to be? Are we going to hear it in the car? Is he going to say anything? And I didn't want to back it up against that last line because then it felt too stingy. You know, it felt mm-hmm. like, OK, now we're really trying to drive this point home. So I let it breathe for a second and let him think. And he thinks. And then you start to hear the emotion of that music start to enter and creep into the scene as a prelap as we go into the next scene with adult J.D. and older Bev. That particular song, Tuesday's Gone, is a song that J.D. heard when his grandfather passed. So it has some significance. It got me a little emotional talking about it, but it it has significance. It's not a randomly placed song. Oh, interesting. I didn't quite get that the the grandfather was living someplace else. I finally, and and the audience doesn't need to know that, right? But there was a scene where they're dropping off the grandma. Once I heard that the grandfather isn't living with the grandmother, I'm like, oh yeah, there was that scene earlier where he drives down the street when they're all dropping off the luggage or whatever. They had an estranged relationship, but they were in the same neighborhood. They lived very close to each other and remained in their children and grandchildren's lives. But it's funny that you talk about that moment because I was never certain that that moment landed until we took it to screenings and previews. At that point, I was certain that the audience understood it. The grandfather says to Mama, I'll see you tomorrow. And you think that he's going to drive off like 20 miles to his place. And he goes right down the street and drops his daughter off who lived down the street. And then he goes down like four doors down and gets in his 
place. So it's really funny how all of <laughs> how all of that happened. But it, you know, we used a little bit of music that accentuated that, but it wasn't really fully until we previewed it that I heard a big laugh from the audience that I go, okay, we're good. We're good. They understand it. I'm interested just because it's a biography, essentially, or it's a it's an autobiographical film. One, the book is choosing its moments, right? It, you don't know everything about this guy's life. These are incidents that reveal something. And then the movie has to further condense the book into even shorter moments, you know, more critical moments. Was there anything that was in the script that you guys found that you had to drop? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I turned in my cut. It was two and a half hours long. The movie now plays an hour and 56 minutes. Yes, there was some great scenes and some great performances that we had to get rid of. And it was not for lack of the scenes didn't play or the performances were poor. It was a tonnage thing that we were making such strong points with what remained in the movie that the scenes that we took out we could justify not needing them. Like there was a wonderful scene that Bev came home from rehab and the family's all waiting for her to arrive because there's a lot of hope with people when they go into rehab and come back home that this is going to be the time that they make it. This is going to be the time that they turn the corner. So that hope never subsided with the family and particularly with JD who, who had done all this work to prepare like this three bean casserole and he even burnt it once. And then he came back and did it again and he made it in, in, in anticipation of his mom coming home. He's looking out the window. He sees the car pull up with her boyfriend, Matt, who was the guy who was helping her at the funeral and who helped her out in the street when she was having her meltdown. So that boyfriend. So they came to the house and it was like they had banners and everything. It was just a wonderful welcoming home scene. But as the scene unfolded and they sat down for dinner, Bev had brought picked up chicken along the way and was eating the chicken because she said the food was terrible in the rehab place. And she didn't know that JD had been slaving over the stove to make this three bean casserole and she's not eating it and the whole thing. And so Mama finally says, well, you should try the three bean casserole. You should eat that. It's pretty good. JD has been slaving over this all day. And she takes some bites from it. And you can tell that she's only as a mother enjoying it. She doesn't really truly like it. And that starts to something in her just clicks where she starts getting angry and upset at Matt. And as the dinner unfolds, it starts to unravel, where she's really starting to argue with Matt. And then after dinner, they have a massive argument where she's going out just after she got home. And Matt's thinking, well, aren't you going to stay home and hang out with the family a little bit? And she had just barely gotten there, and she's taken off to go back out. And he thinks that she's cheating on her. It was a fantastic scene, but we just couldn't use it. You know, we understood that Bev had issues and we understood how those issues played out. So we just couldn't use it. There were a number of scenes with JD once he had been left on his own because his mom was in rehab and his grandmother was living on her own over there where JD was just in the house. A lot of scenes with him and just his dog that we had to get rid of. So yeah, there was some there were some really great scenes that we ended up leaving on the cutting room floor. But I, I have to say that. I personally liked them and missed them. And there was another wonderful scene that Ron loved with the grandfather who had set up a secret phone in a toy chest to tell the kids early on, if your mother ever goes nuts again, if she gets in trouble and you guys feel in danger, you pick up this phone and you call us. It was a wonderful scene. 
I think in the structure of the movie, it came later rather than earlier to set up that kind of incendiary behavior from Bev. We end up at the end of the day, we left it, left it, left it, and it was probably the final scene that was cut out of the movie. And, you know, you gain story momentum that way as well. So we, we ended up, you know, having to let go of some, some precious scenes. Yeah, I, I believe it. What do you temp with? This goes back to the research phase of when I first started, I got the job. And I started talking to a lot of other filmmakers that had done documentaries on the hillbilly region and like musically what they had used themselves, what was cliche about the region. Appalachia is like 11, 12 states. But in that particular Kentucky, West Virginia area, they are very sensitive. They being the Appalachians are very sensitive to how the banjo is portrayed. And the movie Deliverance, they still hurt from that movie the characterization of the people who live in that region. So early on, I understood that banjo played the way it's it's been used in movies would not be great for this culture. It would further accentuate the stereotype that they're, you know, nobody's on board with today. So I started looking at some documentaries and talking to other filmmakers who did documentaries. And I came across a couple of docs, one a Netflix doc called Heroin that was about the opioid crisis. The composer is this guy, Daniel Hart. Through his music, I got turned on to his other composers, but I tempt with a lot of his stuff, at times Johan Johansson for accent and layer pieces. And those were my primary go-tos because Daniel understood, because he was doing documentaries, how to not heavily musically sway the story one way or the other. And so I used that. And then when Hans Zimmer came on board and we were doing our first music spotting, he was sitting in his office in Santa Monica and I was sitting in mine in New York and we were waiting for Ron and, and Brian Grazer and some other execs to show up for the spotting session. And he says to me, James, so who did the temp? And I paused for a second because this is a great Hans Zimmer. He's asking me about who, who the and, and I'm like, oh, this could go down either path. This could be great or this could be really bad because he's thinking I'm completely off. I feel tone this movie. And what was I thinking? He's got a lot of work ahead of him. He didn't say that. He ended up sa- saying after I told him, Hans, I did the music. He goes, oh, because it's frustratingly good. And yes. And then from that point on, it was the Hans and James show. Oh, that's awesome. I love hearing that. Um, There's a long phone conversation during a road trip. That could go any way. Like the things that you see out the window, the parts of the conversation. It's like an eight-hour phone conversation condensed to two minutes. How did you construct that? Yeah, that was a toughie. Number one, it's the end of the movie. And without giving away anything, there was a lot of emphasis because there's a cathartic moment that has to happen with J.D. Vance. That's the movie's all boiled down to that. You know, we shot it. You Using green screen and plates and 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 project LED projection and the whole thing, but the the actual dialogue part of it was a series of anecdotal stories, as JD is beginning to share some of his life with this woman that he loves, and he's opening up. And there was much more there, you know, moments that were reflected from earlier in the film where he's talked about his mom and how he learned to play play football and and what his grandmother taught him and things about his grandfather. And then his girlfriend is relating stories about her upbringing. So they were these two outsiders, seemingly outsiders from Yale who bonded 
because of their different backgrounds. She's of Indian descent. He's from Appalachia. So they, they connected. Their unusual backgrounds really connected them well. And there were a lot more anecdotal stories. But at the end of the day, what we felt was most earned and felt right at the end of the movie is what's in there. And we broke that. It was all storyboarded as well. And I started out cutting storyboards. And then I started getting green screen. And then I cut storyboards with the green screen. And then we got the plates. And then we started marrying the plates to... It was actually blue screen, not green screen, marrying the plates. Then we had to go in and add a bunch of reflections and color timing it properly and which part, where is he now? And it was carefully researched because when you look at that whole driving sequence, he covers a lot of ground in going back from Ohio back to Connecticut. So we had to sit down and map out his route, do signage to show where he is now, some of the conversations. She wants to know where he's at. And he's on the clock. He has to get back to Connecticut by a certain time. So all of that in the end was very carefully thought out. And, you know, there were parts of it that Ron liked a whole lot, parts I liked a whole lot, some of the producers favored. But then we ended up going, what do we need? to tell the audience what's most important because we all have favorites in there. The favorites, a lot of the favorites had to go. And, you know, the actor Gabe Basso was tremendous there. His choices of what he did with that end scene were great. He actually blew everybody away because there was something in him that also related to that particular moment that led to his performance. What was on paper and what he gave us are canyons apart. Really? That's so interesting. To get the audience to have the right emotion by the time he gets home, that's the key. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. In screenings, we discovered that we had a version of the film where he basically went back to it and got the interview back, and that was the end of the film. You know, there was some voiceover there, and that kind of wrapped it up, but it was dissatisfying. It felt more like a stop rather than an ending. So when we were testing the movie, we tested that as well, you know, arrived that we need a scene here. We have to go back in and give this film a proper ending. And so we went back in, did, did some reshoots and picked that scene up and everybody was happy with it. It's a 10 hour drive that you're trying to follow this conversation. Like, do I want to be in this car with these people for 10 hours? No, it just felt, it felt wonderful. It felt the right, the right amount of time. And that's a testament to you and, and tweaking and Ron and the performances that it's not boring, but it's also satisfying. Well, you know, universally, that's, again, the film has this in its favor, where there's so many points of connection and that, that are so relatable. And that's one of them that is extremely relatable. He's in this relationship and he's figured out some things about the relationship that he wants to invest greatly in it. And it affects and informs his performance and what the information that he wants to come forth with. You know, I think a lot of people in relationships feel that they may be judged and how much of your background do you share and when do you share that? And um, if you share it, will the person that you love, will they run for the hills or will they <laughs> <laughs> will they say that I'm 100 percent in because, you know, that's just life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, James, it was a pleasure talking to you. This film is just beautiful. I hope everybody gets a chance to watch it. And uh, I'm still I'm I'm sticking by my uh, two Oscar uh, wins for the, uh, the for the leading ladies of no one else. Man, what great performances you had to work with, and a great direct great direction as well. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm really honored to be part of your series, Art of the Cut. I was listening to it a lot when I was cutting this film. I told you that we talked about that. I listened to Tom Eagles when he was on his way to the Eddies for for <laughs> Jojo Rabbit, and I actually I've never met Mike. 
Mike Hill, but I listened to your podcast with Mike when I needed to take a little time away from uh, the screen and stop and just do something else to take my mind away from a problem that I was trying to solve in the cut. And I pulled up your podcast with Mike Hill. Thank you. And it was great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I hope you and I get a chance to meet in person someday. We will. That's a bet. I, I definitely look forward to our paths crossing. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, James D. Wilcox, ACE. Also, thanks to Dylan Giovanetto, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition, and to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.